0: It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched.
1: The Babylon Podcast was a dream-given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully.
0: It's a port of call. Home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests.
1: Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night.
0: It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace.
1: This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations.
0: The year is 2024.
1: The name of the podcast is...
0: Babylon Babylon 5, 30 Years Later.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for downloading this latest episode of Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. This podcast is a look back at the classic science fiction show Babylon 5, with each of our episodes being released 30 years after the episode we are covering. My name is John Wilson. And I am Blaine Dowler. And today we're talking about Soul Hunter, Blaine. That we are, yes. This is the second episode proper of the first season. It's always going to be weird during this first season being just one off because of that pilot episode not being part of the first season but you know we can survive yeah
0: we'll manage once we get through our feedback episodes and the other bonus episodes we're talking about the numbers are not going to come close to matching anyway so we'll live with it spoilers
1: we're doing other episodes what i wasn't prepared for this
0: okay we have time
1: (laughs) we uh Might as well just get right into this. No other real preliminaries. So Soul Hunter was written by J. Michael Straczynski, who, of course, um, created and is helming this ship or station. It was directed by Jim Johnston, and it featured William Morgan Shepard as the titular Soul Hunter. And I decided, just, you know, because I know Blaine likes this show as well, to structure my synopsis after the fashion of mission log prologue a shuttle docks at babylon five from the starliner asimov bringing the station's new medical chief of staff dr stephen franklin who is greeted by commander sinclair and lieutenant commander ivanova and we find out that dr kyle has gone to work directly for the president explaining why he is no longer on the station nor on this show And in-universe, that's a good thing, since there's always an increase in alien populations on Earth, which was his specialty. Which kind of gives a nod to that background subplot of Earth developments. Their, uh, I was going to say reunion, but for Ivanova, it's just a union. Their their meeting is interrupted by a call from the bridge. A ship is coming through the jump gate. But it's out of control, and it's headed right for the station. Act 1. Commander Sinclair hops in a ship to avert the collision. Uh, what are those little ships called, the, the fighters that they fly with the not-really-X-Wing design? The Star Furies. Star Furies. Okay. So he's in a Star Fury, and he goes out there, and with some extended CGI action scenes, he uses his grapplers to tether the out-of-control ship and tows it into the flight bay. As Sinclair heads to the med bay to check out the pilot, he is joined by Ambassador Delenn. She volunteers to help identify the unfamiliar pilot's species. Garibaldi is there when they arrive, but when Delenn sees the unconscious form of the pilot, she screams, Shock tot! and grabs Garibaldi's sidearm. Sinclair wrestles it from her before she can fire, and she claims the pilot is a soul hunter, and his presence means someone will die. Later in Sinclair's quarters, she explains that a soul hunter is drawn to death and collects people's souls as they die. Act 2. Since the arrival of the Soul Hunter, the residents of the alien sector have retreated to their quarters and a dozen docked ships have left the station ahead of schedule. We then get some parallel storytelling. Down in the lower decks of the station, a man sheets some roughnecks at a gambling table. When he is caught, he runs, but they catch up and stab him. Meanwhile, the Soul Hunter has woken up in the medlab 1 and is talking to Dr. Franklin about an approaching something. The injured gambler is rolled into the med lab and while the doctor tries and fails to save his life the soul hunter rants about the death as it happens he seems to be fully aware of the moment the patient passes from life to death Sinclair questions the soul hunter who is reluctant at first but then tells Sinclair that they preserve the souls of great people thinkers poets and such to learn from them They had tried to collect the soul of Ducat the leader of the Kardas- I mean the Minbari. He was the pinnacle of their evolution at the time of the war, but the Minbari stopped the Soul Hunters and Ducat's ideas died with him. Dr. Franklin is present at the questioning and takes the empiricist view that the entire notion of collecting a soul is patently ridiculous. Sinclair orders a guard posted to the Soul Hunter off the station as soon as the ship is repaired. There's an unexpectedly poignant moment as Franklin and Ivanova launch the knifing victim's body in a pod toward the sun. And then Delenn visits the soul hunter in the med lab and inquires after his soul collection and if any of them are Minbari. She is determined to find it and set all the souls free to rejoin the Minbari and be reborn in the next generation. The soul hunter recognizes her as being Satai Delenn of the Grey Council, present at his attempt to collect Dukat. And he wonders what one of the great leaders of the Minbari is doing on this station, pretending to be an ambassador. After she leaves, the Soul Hunter tricks the guard, knocks him unconscious, takes his sidearm, and leaves the med lab. Act 3. The Soul Hunter retrieves his soul collection from his ship, which is a burlap sack full of glowy, floaty Christmas tree ornaments. He then goes to the alien sector and meets with an insectoid to get a guide to the secret ways about the station. Sinclair and Ivanova are on the bridge when the jump gate opens unexpectedly. The arriving ship hails them, and the pilot says Sinclair knows who and what he is. And Sinclair doesn't say, I had no idea what a soul hunter was before this episode started. He just goes with it, and he says, sure, come on board, let's have a soul hunter party, quickly, before someone dies. Garibaldi's not too keen on this visitor, but Sinclair meets him anyway. The visiting soul hunter number two says the first one is not quite right in the head. Ever since failing to preserve the soul of the Minbari leader, he has become unbalanced and now does not wait for someone to die instead when he meets someone worthy of preserving he kills them and takes their soul the new visiting soul hunter number 2 has been trailing him for some time and of course our rogue soul hunter number 1 has selected the soul of satai delan one of the gray council itself to preserve he abducts her from her quarters and ties her to a slow death machine act 4 the slow death machine is giving delena a slow death by draining blood from her ankle This will leave the soul in a better condition than if the soul hunter just took it. Sinclair and Garibaldi ask the soul hunter investigator, number two, to use his death sense to tell them where to go. So they, um, they go on the hunt. The soul hunter has a soul extractor that is slowly filling a Christmas tree ornament with Delenn's soul. We get some hint of something important when the soul hunter sees that Delenn is planning something, and he's appalled that she would even do this. Sinclair arrives. Gunplay ensues. The Soul Hunter tells Sinclair that Delenn is satai and They're using you! Sinclair falls next to the collecting the collection bag and opens it, and several of the glowy soul balls float out and confront the Soul Hunter. Sinclair turns the soul extractor on him and pulls his soul into the Christmas tree ornament meant for Delenn. Later in the med lab, Delen regains consciousness enough to tell Sinclair they were right about him. Sinclair finds out from the computer that Satai is one of the Grey Council. That's what Satai means, the Minbari Ruling Council. And in the epilogue, Sinclair sees Soul Hunter Investigator off the station after telling him the station is off limits to his people, and Delenn takes a slow joy in communing with each of the captured souls from the Soul Hunters collection before setting each one free. That was Soul Hunter. Yes, it was.
0: All right. So now we've hit the key points before we get into the major discussion. We'll hit the segment we call the Zocalo and drop in a promo for another podcast.
1: In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at johnreadscomics.com Okay. We are back, and we've decided to call this segment the League in Session. We're going to give our general discussion and thoughts on the episode. So, what were you thinking about this one, Blaine?
0: I thought it was entertaining. I like what he was doing, especially with the souls. I don't know how clearly it came across on screen, but in the script level, it's very clear that JMS wanted it ambiguous about whether the Soul Hunter was actually collecting souls or whether Dr. Franklin was right and they were just imprinting. The, the memories in essentially an advanced AI modeled after a person. And then with the wrap up, even if they are souls, the question is, you know, who is right about the destination of the souls? Were the soul hunters actually preserving or were they denying them the next step in the journey as Delenn be believed? So it is meant to be ambiguous in a few ways.
1: Yeah, I I didn't see the ambiguity with Franklin. Franklin seemed to present, you know, an expected view. When you're in a situation with mystical elements and you have somebody whose a life experience involves no mystical elements, you tend to have that conflict. But it seemed to be pretty clear that he was actually doing something and there didn't seem to be anything. Well, as you say, there didn't seem to be anything too technological about it, except there was that big old machine uh, zapping something into the, you know, soul collector ball thing.
0: Right. Yeah. and. I think some of it is because when Delenn cracks them and we see something escape, people think, okay, well, that would be the soul. On the script level, it's specified that something comes out, but it has no clear form. It's not going to be, you know, the face or the spirit of the person. Right. Anything like that. It's some kind of energy that was contained being released. So, yeah, I don't think it came out as ambiguous as JMS intended, but that's okay.
1: I did like the ideology conflict between uh, what Delenn thinks is the fate of the soul versus what the soul hunter thinks is the fate of the soul. But I again, I didn't see a lot of ambiguity there because she's coming at it from a metaphysical, this is what we believe standpoint. And he's coming at it from an experiential, this is what I've actually dealt with perspective, you know, so. I, I appreciate that Janus is going for a couple of ambiguity aspects, but the the way the show played for me, it was pretty straightforward on which side reality was.
0: Yeah, it does seem to clearly indicate that souls are a thing in the Babylon Five universe, mm-hmm. and it's just what are you doing with them? Is the question, and I think part of that is because while Franklin voiced his views, he didn't have an active discussion with either of the characters about who was right and who was wrong. So that viewpoint was kind of acknowledged, but it didn't get anywhere close to the amount of screen time as the other two. Right. So I think that's the main reason it felt sidelined. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that, really, there is no B-plot in this episode. So a lot of shows will have the A-plot, which is really what's going on in the B-plot with some of the other characters who aren't involved in the A-plot to give everybody something to do. And this really didn't have that. So last week, there was, you know, Garibaldi and Ivanova dealing with the Raiders, while the others were dealing with the invasion of Ragesh Three. This time, it's the Soul Hunter is really the only game in town for the week, and characters who weren't actively involved just didn't really show up. No Londo, no Jakar. They just weren't a part of this particular episode.
1: Yeah, we. I, I was looking that when I was looking through the, uh, the credits. There were several names that just said credit only beside them. So, I mean, at the same time, I don't feel like this storyline was too padded. It's not like they had to reach for stuff to do to fill the 45 minutes. It was, I'm not sure it's going to be my favorite episode at the end of the first season. I liked it. I don't know that I loved it, but it certainly had enough going on with it to keep the whole episode busy.
0: Right. You don't feel like it's being dragged or filled or padded, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They spent the full 44 or 48 minutes, whatever the runtime was, on this story, because that's what this particular story took. Yeah, they didn't have a contractually obligated moment where some character comes in to say two lines because they have to speak every episode.
1: <laughs> I did love the Soul Hunters design. The stone in the forehead was very cool.
0: Yeah, I think that was designed to evoke a third eye. That's one of the few alien descriptions that actually shows up on a script level. The way the aliens were described in The Gathering, for example, all we had is that, you know, the Centauri should look more human than the others. And the Narn should look the least human compared to the Centauri and the Mimbari. And that's about it. Everything else he was leaving up to the makeup department to go nuts and a lot of the aliens we're going to see were actually already created. So the effects house that they hired to do it made some to these specifications and then Larry DeTilio, who we'll talk more about in future weeks, the executive story editor who also wrote some of the scripts, got invited to see some of their other creations. So he went to the warehouse and they just had a hallway filled with alien heads. So he just ran through and started cataloging, and they just used them. So we will see a lot of alien-looking aliens, because the makeup company was just having fun, and they already had these molds made, and he went, okay, here's the name of this race, and this race, and this race, and this race, and started cataloging
1: them. Well, speaking of cool alien designs, even though he was only on the screen for maybe 30 seconds, I really, really liked the insectoid creature. Ah, Like, they wouldn't be able to do a lot with him because he doesn't feel like he's that mobile and his face was kind of static. But for the little bit we got this episode, he was really cool looking.
0: Yeah, he was another one that was um, specified on the script level, just saying, somewhat insectoid, not human, make this look good because we'll be using him again.
1: Ah, okay.
0: So that's in the, the giving form to the dream. Yes, that will yeah. be a recurring character.
1: And while we're on the topic of alien designs, I hadn't noticed before this episode, but Delenn's ears are not her ears.
0: No, the Mimbari ears are placed lower than the human ears, so the makeup have ear tubes, so that the sound gets carried up through the makeup to the actor's ears.
1: Okay. So yeah, when it's, it's mostly noticeable whenever she's laying on the MedLab bed at the end of the episode. And she's sort of, you know, rolling her head back and forth unconscious. That's when you can definitely see the artifacts of the you know, prosthetic and makeup design on her ears. But obviously you can notice that they're lower, but you get a nice good view of the fact, hey, these are not real ears. These are clamshell shaped latex.
0: Yeah, they are definitely lower. Still more realistic than, say, the 1990 Captain America years. <laughs>
1: I said it last episode, but I do continue to enjoy the fact that they created new characters instead of just recasting characters. So we have uh, Dr. Franklin's introduction here to replace Dr. Kyle.
0: Yes, to take over for Dr. Kyle.
1: What do we think about him? Do you know the actor from anywhere?
0: Uh, Richard Biggs, up to this point, had done mostly soap opera work. And I remember they actually had an interview with him. On the space channel, which is now CTV sci fi here in Canada, when it first launched and they hadn't sold all the ad spots, they actually produced little featurettes. And one of them, they just spent a day shooting pool with Richard Biggs and filmed it and made a bunch of little five minute featurettes. And, you know, he said it, there was a big difference between science fiction and soap operas. Everyone loves the characters, they love the shows, they love the ongoing stories. So the passion is the same, but he said the the way that the fans presented it is very, very different. And to represent it, he did the soap opera fan going, Oh my God, it's you. I love it. You it. And just doing the, you know, the total freak out and all this. Whereas the sci-fi fan, when they see you in the wild, does it differently. And he, you know, just walked by the guy who was doing his the model, pat him on the shoulder, goes, nice work. and keeps on walking without slowing down. <laughs> so he says it's very different demeanors, but yeah. Now, unfortunately, Richard Biggs was one of the first major cast members that Babylon 5 lost. We said that they've disproportionately lost cast and crew. He passed away at the age of 44 in 2004.
1: Oh, wow. That's next year for me, 44.
0: Yeah, that is this year for me. It was apparently a previously undiagnosed heart condition, if memory serves. So, yes, it's like I said, Babylon 5 has had a very unfortunate streak. I'm actually looking at the cover art for one of the seasons of Babylon Five right now. hmm And four of the five faces featured on that cover art are for performers that are no longer with us. Gotcha. And the fifth is not a part of the show yet.
1: So they'll be coming later. Yes. So I had some, you know, thoughts I wrote down just with details of, of the plot as it was going on. But first just to confirm, Delenn, is she wearing a headdress or is that like a bone protrusion?
0: It is a bone ridge.
1: Okay. So that's part of her biology.
0: Yes, that, that crest around her, her skull is part of her biology, which we did see on the only other Membari we've seen so far and we'll see on future Minbari.
1: I thought that maybe whenever Delenn was trying to shoot the guy and Sinclair was telling her not to, that perhaps less rhetoric and more explanation. But then we got the follow-up scene with the conversation when she's a bit more calm. It's just like, if there's a clear and present danger and you're super concerned, maybe communicating clearly up front would be the goal there.
0: True. But that speaks to the passion DeleN has. So the the concept of the soul and what happens to the soul in the afterlife is particularly important to Delenn. So that's actually something else I was going to bring up in the giving form to the dream segment. Okay. Because this is a, a part of her character and the way she interacts down the road. Her view of souls will matter. So she was just too emotional and too incensed to take the time to speak coherently
1: in that moment. I liked Dr. Franklin in this whenever he's working on the knifing victim, which, side note, that can, that table that had the knifing victim on is like the worst medical table ever because there's this whole like covering over the body that they can't actually get to the body. But Soul Hunter's in the back just ranting about random stuff, and Franklin's like, shut this guy up, I'm trying to do surgery. Yeah, someone take
0: off, or turn off that speaker. Right. So then he... Goes back and turns it on again afterwards. So the Soul Hunter keeps on blabbing. They just can't hear it. <laughs> because as they established that while his lungs can process oxygen, it's not his native environment. I also did like the fact that when he was talking to the Soul Hunter, the Soul Hunter finally responded. Franklin's first reaction, when he spoke to the guy, the Soul Hunter didn't respond. He asked for a translation team. And that's when the Soul Hunter said, Not necessary. I have been to your world. So he has actually learned English. So there's no universal translator technology in Babylon 5. That's just part of all the conversations. So we've seen some of that with Kosh, where he has that translation machine. So we've heard his voice, we'll call it. It's like a series of musical chimes that was actually developed by composer Christopher Frank. That is Kosh's actual voice. And then what we hear is that translation box on his chest. Very cool. So we do have some specific translations. I don't remember if everyone is actually speaking English or if that's translated for the audience. Like, you know, the backstory in Star Trek is that none of the characters speak English. It's this international standard. And yet the Universal Translator can work even with the very first sentence of a new alien race that they meet.
1: I'm okay with uh, a future of Earth still having English in some recognizable form.
0: Yeah, it's... English is... One of the dominant languages right now, if you look at, you know, the spread of the first language speakers, it may be top in the world. I haven't paid attention to that, but that is all, I think, primarily due to uh, political reasons and, you know, which are the most influential countries, because English has got to be a nightmare to learn as a second language. (laughs) So I have tremendous respect for anyone who's done it.
1: Yes, definitely. Garibaldi is barely in this, but Ivanova has some good lines. I really liked the whole, we're Russian, we understand these things when they're talking about sort of fatalism.
0: Yes. Yeah. That is very much Ivanova. And that was one of the things that, one of the few things that JMS felt was a good thing after losing Takashima is because Straczynski is from the Belarusian descent. He wanted to put in a good Russian character. Although he says, firstly, the only. Real sign that he is Russian is the the fact that, as he put it, he's got like a a four hundred letter last name with two vowels.
1: <laughs> I would say three vowels, but yes, I I had thought that his last name was Polish, but I could be wrong. My my knowledge of middle of of uh, Eastern European languages is scanty at best.
0: Most of what I know of the Eastern European languages comes from my time trying to learn Esperanto, because. There was a time when I intended to be a research physicist, and if you're researching in particle physics, you're going to be working on a lot of international collaborations, looking at the project end of my master's thesis on just our collaborators had someone counted it had something like thirty seven different countries represented for just our sub project within the project so I started learning Esperanto because all the research was saying, if you're going to learn a lot of European languages, learning the rest will be easier if you've learned Esperanto first. Mm. So at one point, I was almost fluent in Esperanto and having typed conversations with people online. And I could watch Incubus with William Shatner almost without the subtitles half the time. But it's been a long time since that happened, because when I found I enjoyed teaching more than I enjoyed doing research, I left. And all of a sudden, I don't feel the need. The pressing need to learn nine different languages. (laughs) Now I'm just trying to learn Vietnamese so I can talk to my in-laws.
1: Be like Uhura and just, I know 37 languages. I needed to know them, so I just learned them. Yes. The last thing I had is that I liked at the end of the episode how Delenn is now the possessor of the soul gems. So we should be having our Infinity Gauntlet coming up pretty soon.
0: Yeah, I also really like Sinclair's response when the other soul hunter asks, So may I ask what happened to my brother's collection? And it's, well, the universe is full of mysteries. This is just going to have to be one of them.
1: <laughs> Sinclair is growing on me. I said last episode, I, I wasn't super fond of him in the first, in the pilot, but as we've gotten into the proper season, I rather like Sinclair.
0: Yeah. And I think that also tips a hat to something of the relationship he has with Delenn. So they he's now got the indications that the Minbari have plans, right? He. He bet Franklin half a year's salary when she said that. Yeah, we were right about you. That when she recovered, she would never finish that sentence.
1: Yeah, I was going to bring up that we were right about you in the uh, in the end of the show. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so he knows from that satay, he did that search, which nicely the computer came up and said, "Yeah, there's only one result," because that's not always true of other shows. But so he now knows that Delan is part of the ruling council on the Minbari homeworld. And he knows it doesn't add up, but he still has enough trust and faith in Delenn to hand the collection to her instead of the other soul hunter.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You might think that right of possession says that other soul hunter would have a legal claim to it, whether or not you believe in the ethics.
1: Which, he knows her because they've actually had, we find out, almost two years on the station together. We talked last week about how JMS kept the passage of time, but it's actually even extended because there was a year between the gathering and midnight on the firing line, but there has been almost two years between the opening of the station and now. So unless unless they were on the station for an extended period of time getting things together before it actually, you know, opened for business, as Takashima said.
0: Yeah, I don't think, I don't remember if this specific backstory ever shows up on screen, but JNS did respond to people asking that in the forums. So it's covered in the Asked and Answered book here. But the timeline he had in mind is that Delenn was the one of the first ambassadors to arrive. So it was Delenn and Londo almost immediately, a full six months prior to the events of the gathering. So there was okay a good six months ramping up. Jakar showed up within that time frame as well. And then Kosh was the last. So the story starts there because Kosh's arrival is saying, that okay, now all the major ambassadors are here and we can move
1: forward. Gotcha.
0: So it would be like the classic Doctor Who. If you go back to the very first episode of Doctor Who ever broadcast, the Doctor and his granddaughter are already on adventures. But the story begins when Ian Chesterton and Barbara join them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And personally, I think that's because if you look at The Doctor, when that series started, he wasn't interested in adventure. He wasn't interested in righting wrongs. He was just trying to learn about history and learn about different worlds. And it was Ian Chesterton who taught him how to be a hero. It was Chesterton who said, no, we cannot walk away from this. We need to take a stand. So that's what, you know the story really starts with Chesterton and Barbara. Barbara would always back Chesterton, but 1960s sexist television, Chesterton was always the one to speak up first.
1: I wouldn't say always. Barbara had some really, really good moments.
0: She did, but it took a while to give them to her. Yeah. Those first few episodes, Ian was the action star and Barbara would be protecting Susan. So, yeah, I still say Ian Chesterton is probably the single most important companion in Doctor Who history because he's the one who taught the Doctor how to be a hero and not just a passive observer. He also saved the show, apparently, because they were running over budget and Chester and the original actor kept flubbing his lines for the Doctor, and it was Chesterton who would incorporate the mistakes and keep the episode going, and keep the scene going.
1: Well, I think I've hit all of my major points for this episode. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add before we go into the next bit?
0: No, I think everything else I want to say belongs in the later sections, so I guess it's time for our last best hope for our standout character or character moment.
1: Okay. Do you have a standout character or character moment? For me,
0: I'll, it's tough cuz a lot of it's not really a specific character's moment, but I did like the conversation between the soul hunter and Delenn when you know, she's outraged by what she considers to be the greatest crime and he's saying, "No, you don't understand." And it's coming down to the ideologies, which is I found a very realistic argument that I've seen take place and participated in myself variations of that many times where it's not really a conversation or an argument that's going to get anywhere. It's not a true debate. It's two people trying to convince the other that they are wrong, but they are unwilling to admit that they might be the one who was wrong. So I just found that was a very realistic scene that drove the entire episode.
1: hmm Similar to that, I really enjoyed Franklin's addition here. He comes in, he's... You know, immediately ingratiating as the new, I, I my tendency is to call him chief medical officer, but he's apparently not an officer. He's just on the medical staff here, so I shouldn't use that term, but that's what I think of him as because of my Star Trek background. And, you know, when it comes to the you know debate on the metaphysics, you know, he and I are in the same camp along with, you know, Roger from Rent, who says that there's a soul. And I rather enjoyed him. In his interactions with the soul hunter.
0: Yeah, I do like him too. And again, I am, I am not one who believes in souls in the real world, but it's one of those things where if people are building a fictional world. I will accept whatever theology and stuff that they have for it. Cause that's the story they're telling.
1: I tend to think of it as kind of like the, uh, the, the, the concept of luck slash fate. we, We have a word that we apply to describe our experiences, like with luck slash fate. We have a we've given this word to when events go our way. We call that good luck. Okay, that's a thing that we call. You know, we have a word for just the 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 inner experiences of somebody's person. That's that's a soul. When you extend that beyond experience into some larger thing, like luck is this force that causes things to go your way or not your way or fate is a predetermined set of events that you must adhere to or the soul is you know something separate from the result of your biological chemical processes that's when i start to disagree
0: yeah i can see that if you look at the soul as sort of the the collection of experiences and psychology and decision making processes that make you a unique individual well okay If you're talking about as a piece of you that survives after the death of your body, that's where you and I are going to disagree.
1: Right. And I remember when I first realized that the Greek word for soul is the word that we base psychology and psychiatry on. So those are, technically speaking, studies of the soul. But I think all would agree that those are studying and working with your current mind, will, and emotional state. Yep, I would think so. But uh, let's move on away from our metaphysical discussion of reality to giving form to the dream. So some things that I saw that I figure are probably going to stick pins in, and then uh, I would invite you to add to the list, the ending bits of this episode, where first the soul hunter is looking at Delenn's First hints of soul being collected and says, you have planned such a thing. You would do such a thing. We had no idea what such a thing is, but I have a feeling that that's important. And also, whenever she's laying there on the bed and looks at Sinclair and says, we were right about you. I'm betting this ties into the whole. She's here to observe him. He was present at the turning of the Minbari War. He has a hole in his mind. All that stuff is, is being alluded to there. So, what else did I miss?
0: Yeah, so everything that you found, we should be sticking pins in. And I think the other major piece here is really the value and importance that Delenn has on her perceptions of souls and what happens to souls. Okay. That piece I've already mentioned. And I am reading ahead in the scripts. And I realized seeing other bits of foreshadowing, I haven't hit this point yet, but there was a comment in the gathering that I forgot to draw attention to. And that was with Dr. Kyle when he first went to Dr. Takashama, or, or I keep calling her Dr., did that in our recording of the gathering as well. But when he first went to Lieutenant Commander Takashima and she gave him the coffee. He mentioned that, yeah, he had been working around the clock by using stims and was suffering from the ill side effects. That's something we should have stuck a pin in there, too. So he's bringing up now so that when the time comes, we will continue. Just reminding me when they mentioned Dr. Kyle in today's episode. So it was a, a connection to Dr. Kyle because he made that choice and had the side effects.
1: So what's interesting is this episode, I think, is the first one that feels like a random plot of the week kind of storytelling. And yet it brings in this concept of souls, which is evidently going to be important to the world building and future events. So it's, it goes into this. um, I listened to this podcast called writing excuses, where they talk about, you know, different things about writing. And one of the things is whatever your big events are later, if you can forecast those or seed those in ways that feel unimportant, and natural at the time, then that will help your ending reveals or dramatic reveals feel more organic later on. So I feel like that's what they're doing here.
0: They are. This is... It speaks to the way I described Babylon 5 early on, that it's a mosaic. So the these Season 1 episodes largely will give you the idea that you have a complete picture. And it's not until more episodes are filled in in future seasons that you see that they were really pieces of a larger chunk. So we also mentioned that these are being produced out of order. This was the second episode produced. So they actually produced this episode prior to last week's. And then the first one they produced is still two weeks away. So this was another one that was slightly out of order, but not tremendously out of order.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So, yeah, we do have those here. So yes, the, the souls will be important as part of the Babylon five world. And Here, it just feels like this is the complete story. So that is one thing JMS has done very, very well with this series, as I think we'll all see by the time we're done this podcast, that the foreshadowing is so subtle that you often don't realize it's foreshadowing. So at least not until we hit our giving form to the dream statement and said, yeah, all those stuff, put pins in all of those.
1: (laughs) Just don't put a pin in the stone in his head because it might actually deflate. Yes. Okay, so I guess that brings us to our final segment, which is our com link. How are they going to get in touch with us? How can you talk to us? How can you have your feedback read on the air? And our email address, which you should definitely write to, is babylon 530 at com. Now you might ask yourself, self, do I spell out five or do I use numerals? Do I spell out 30 or do I use numerals? And I personally would use numerals for all of it because it's just easier to type. But if you spelled out your numbers, the emails will still get to us. We were just that clever and took care of all of those needs ahead of time.
0: Yes, we have all four variations of the email address.
1: And we will be doing feedback uh, episodes later. One of the things we're going to do during broadcast breaks of the show is uh, filling in with special episodes and responding to your feedback is important to us. So while we may not do it on a weekly basis, we will be doing it later in the series' run. So do please send in your thoughts on the episodes or your thoughts on our thoughts.
0: So those of you who are following through either our individual feeds, if you are posting the comments on Bureau42.com, if you want us to read those, just flag it as such and we'll read those comments on the air. Uh, we'd also be very happy to read any reviews left in the iTunes stores, which John and I can easily check for U.S. and Canada. If you've left a review in another store or a, another podcast app, let us know. And we will see if we can access that to read those on the air, because we would appreciate that feedback. Positive or negative, although if it's negative, please be specific. So it sucks. doesn't help us. It sucks because it can give us room to grow and learn and improve things a year and a half after you make your comment, because that's roughly our lead time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And also comments can be left at johnreadscomics.com since this show is posted in both of those websites. And yeah, I guess that wraps us up. So next episode, we will be continuing along with the next episode of the season, which is entitled Born to the Purple, which I think is that's where they guest star Prince, right?
0: Uh, yeah, he comes in with some rainstorms that are showing up in the garden. It's very unusual. I'm going to have a heck of a time spelling his name in the credits.
1: It's our gayest episode yet. All right. Anything else before we go, Blaine?
0: Um, no, that's about it. So, yeah, next week, Born to the Purple, which was written by Larry d'atilio So, we'll talk a bit about him and about that. The original air date was Wednesday, February 9th, 1994. So you can hear our coverage on Friday, February 9th, 2024. So we'll have that two-day gap for a few episodes, and then we will have asynchronous leap years. So our coverage will shift from Fridays to Saturdays, even though the original broadcasts were staying on Wednesdays. But then right around Season 3, the show moved to Monday. Our coverage will go to Thursdays and then jump to Wednesdays when. We have the asynchronous leap years again. So we'll always be 30 years after the date, just may not be the same day of the week.
1: Because calendars are fun. Okay, until that time, everyone, thank you very much for listening to Babylon 5 30 years later. And good eating to you.
0: And thank you for listening.